Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I am your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is executive editor at Sunset Magazine, Hugh Garvey. Hugh has worked as a journalist writing about food, travel, and lifestyle for over 20 years at places like Playboy, Condé Nast Traveler, and Bon Appetit. Today, we talk about food writing and Hugh's start reviewing books at The Village Voice. Here is your weekly reminder. In the show notes, there is a link. That link will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for The Stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep The Stacks free. If you're in need of a book recommendation, send us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air and give you a personalized book recommendation. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like The Stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, you can join us on Patreon. You earn perks like our virtual book club and get to connect with other listeners of this podcast. Plus, you get to rest easy knowing your contribution helps to make this show possible. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to be a part of this fantastic community. I also want to say a huge thank you to Tibby Roten, our newest member of the Stacks Pack. Thank you for supporting the work we do here. The last thing is the easiest. Just subscribe to the Stacks. Leave us a rating and a review. It's super helpful and it's super easy. So please, please, please take a moment to do that. And of course, we always invite you to tell someone you know about the show. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Hugh Garvey. All right, everybody. I am here today with Hugh Garvey. Hugh is the executive editor at Sunset Magazine. And before that, you can find you could find his work in Playboy and Bon Appetit, among other places. Hugh, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you. Great to be here. We're so excited to have you. So that's kind of like a silly professional introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into food, the food writing world, the writing world? Kind of give us a little background. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a two-decade uh, <laughs> lifestyle journalist, uh, and I've worked in me- at many publications, um, a lot of them based in New York. And, uh, you know, I, like a lot of writers, um, I, was, uh, I studied um, English in college and um, wanted to be a writer, and I didn't know in quite what way. Um, so I got a job at a 
newspaper in New York called the Village Voice. There's no longer with us, but um, it was um, at the book review department. So my first job out of college as a newly minted English major was sort of a dream job. I got to um, read books for a living immediately after having um, paid to read books. <laughs> and so um, that was really, I have to say, um, I started reading a lot of novels. It was a lot of fiction and, you know, nonfiction. And um, over the years, I started reading all the cookbooks okay. and learned to cook that way. And so um, skipping over many magazines, um, my, you know, I now um, edit uh, a lot of food content at um, Sunset Magazine, where I'm executive editor. And uh, it's something that really started when I was in my early 20s and um, books were what led me to develop a skill set and a way of thinking about food um, that has taken me to this moment. I mean, it still remains cool. like part and parcel of my job. Right. So you were English major writer, then you started reading cookbooks for fun or was that also part of the reviewing of the books at the village voice well it's funny we didn't the one thing we didn't do was review cookbooks okay. so um and it's it's sort of i have a complicated history with books my um i, mean, I think a lot of people do yeah. <laughs> and so i'm not unique in that but <laughs> mine um i think my story is um a lot of professional and personal adjacency to the book business and, okay. and so i kind of saw how the sausage was made from the very beginning. My grandparents had a publishing company. So cool. Um, they, so I grew up looking at manuscripts before I could read um, that my grandparents had um, one floor of their house was um, 50% of it was dedicated to books and therefore it was much like a library and it even had a card catalog system, oh I believe. Um, so I grew up, you know, running around and books were just, I literally was surrounded by books. My dad was a writer. Um, there were stacks of books everywhere. He was a book reviewer among many things. And so I, um, I don't see books as standalone things. I see them as part of a big system. Okay. And I always did. Um, and my first job out of college, well, I had a very romantic notion of what books were when I was in college. And I thought, um, that a writer could just, um, well, I mean, what writers actually do. But I thought simply books were these fantastic works of either um, fiction or nonfiction that people um, <laughs> somehow um, conjured and that if they were good, they were published. And so all you had to do was be a good writer good. and then you'd have books yeah. I and mean, you have a book and you could be, a, and you could be, a, you could be a writer I see. <laughs> and, um, working at the village voice quickly in the book review department where I probably saw, um, 200 books come in a week. We got every book that was published in the United States Whew. and my job was to, um, uh, go through them and divide them into three categories. And so at, you know, in my early twenties, just like this nobody, you know, who all, who could read right. and who they trusted um, <laughs> for some reason, um, got to decide to some degree, in at least in that context, the fate of these books. Right. So, um, so you quickly realized it wasn't a meritocracy at all. Exactly. And that I was part of the problem. Right. <laughs> and, right. Um, and I really saw that. I was like, you know, my job was to divide them into three, um, three categories. And it was uh, 
no, maybe, <laughs> and yes. And, and no meaning no, the book is no good, or no, we won't review we this? We won't review it. Okay. This is not our book to review. Okay. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't. So, you know, Stephen King would go in the no, no file. Got you it. Know, uh, and that was just based on who the village voice was. Exactly. The identity it, of that yes, publication. And, and at that point, and so we had a, it was a section called the Voice Literary Supplement. It was a standalone section. It very much pri- pri- you know, prided itself on not being the New York Times, not being the New York Review of Books. And, mm. and it was a fantastic section. It was, it was, it got into, you know, you know, gender politics and identity and Muslim, you know, Islamic fundamentalism and all, and like, and it was, it tangled, you know, from go, from the moment of go with everything that we're now realizing we need to be, needed right. to be tangling with all along. And right. so it was very ahead of its time, but also very, of its time, very village voicey. And, right. um, so what was in the yes pile? What kind of thing? You know, trans, what they used to call transgressive okay. action, which okay. was like, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, there are many definitions of it, but it was, um, what people would consider, um, you know, outsider cultures, voices Got of, it. you know, um, what then were fringe voices, but were voices, you know, people of color, uh, uh you know, gay and lesbian, uh, you know, writers and, Got it. and, and, uh, um, a lot of international fiction that was then published mm. in the States or a lot of immigrant fiction, you know, you know, so a yes would be, you know, the first anthology of Filipino American writing, right. like no brainer. Yes. Of course. Right. right. Um, maybe would be first fiction by Iowa writers, workshop graduate, you know, Z, you right. know, mm, you know, maybe. we've seen this before, <laughs> you know, but like, Oh, are they really great? Or, you know, is there, there's some, is there some, something that we can single out and, um, you know, but there was a whole debate. I mean, it was, it's just so funny to think that like there were two, even where, there, there were two camps. It'd be like, is Jeffrey Eugenides like too mainstream? Mm-hmm. You know, like there would be like, oh, right. or should, you know, they'd be like, oh, it's Rick Moody. Oh, these guys are in the, it's the boys club, you know? Right. And it's like, but those were great questions to be being right. asked in the early nineties. So it was fantastic. Long way of saying, I saw a lot of great efforts by a lot of writers go nowhere, at least in our little world. Mm. And it was very dispiriting. And when you're like, because you're a writer. You want, yeah. And you're like, well, wait a second. Like, how good do I have to be? Right. You know, and you're like, you have to, you know what? You kind of have to be really good. Did it not change your, because you went in thinking if you're good, your book gets published, the world sees it, you win, you become a famous author. That was kind of like the way yeah. that you went into it. And then when you sat there, like if you you're had, a good doctor, you'll get a job, you know, right. you'll, 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 you know, at a hospital. But that's how you went into working at the Village Voice. And then you're there and you're <laughs> separating things into three piles. And there, at no point were you not like, oh, it actually doesn't have to do with being good. It has to be the right place. Like I just need to get my book to the right place. Mm-hmm. Did that come to you or not really? It eventually did. Eventually, but not but, in the but moment. At first when I was like this, Right. You know, kid out of college with these <laughs> massively unrealistic romantic notions. It was really depressing. It just was like, I'm never going to be. I'm never going to. Yeah. And so, okay. and, I, and I, and, and I, yeah, as a kid, you know, with all these romantic notions and seeing all of these rejections that I was a part of, like I was in some ways <laughs> rejecting what I wanted to become. Right. And it was like, you know, it, it was sort of my psychological makeup and immaturity at the time. So I, you know, eventually I evolved to really see, you know, what it took and, learned more about the industry but at that time i was just like this is just really depressing and i can't read any of this fiction anymore i'm going to do it for my job but when i go home i will not read for i can't read for pleasure anymore got it and and so like well you know previous to that job and that experience i could read for pleasure 
I, I, in the evening, I couldn't anymore. Hmm. But the books that I could read for pleasure were the cookbooks. Got it. Because there was, Got I didn't it. want to be a cookbook author. Right. I didn't want to be a cook. I was like, <laughs> I wanted to cook. I love food. I always right. love food. You always like, did. Yeah, but I was like, these are great. This is just escapist. This is nothing to do with my life. And, right. and so, and um, there was actually a, a writer, I remember there was a review in The Village Voice of, I believe, a literary memoir or a, one of the few cookbooks we reviewed and the uh, the reviewer said um the great thing about recipes is that every one of them is a story with a happy ending mm. and that was what those books what recipes were to me they mm. were um they lifted my mood and they they gave me hope and i could escape into them and i could fantasize and i could read about countries i hadn't been to in some ways it returned me it it reintroduced me to the wonder of reading mm. that I'd lost through this cynical early 20s, right. you know, look at Sausage Factory. That's so beautiful. I'm going to cry. I'm like getting emotional over here. It's funny because I think of cookbooks as super not a thing to read. Okay. <laughs> like in my mind, mm -hmm. if I'm like, oh, I'm going to read a book. I'm gonna like, let me grab a cookbook. I think of cookbooks as a instructional guide. I want to make something. Let me open a cookbook. Mm -hmm. But I'm like one of those people who skips through a lot of the story part of the cookbook mm -hmm. and just go straight to how many cups of flour do yeah. I need to make the pie crust, yes. right? Yes. So it's so funny to think because we won't talk about this too much right now, but next week we're talking about salt, fat, acid, heat. And I read it through like a book start to finish. And I was very moved by it. And so it's just funny to hear you saying that now because I'm thinking, am I? have I been missing out on cookbooks i've been doing it wrong because i like to cook and i like to eat i love to eat <laughs> mm -hmm. um and i just never thought of cookbooks as being a place to go for reading you know, know it's it's um they can be but they don't always have to be and i think like my relationship with books and i think all of our relationships with books i would tend to think that we we change what we want to read and how we read and i think i think a lot of people might say all right i'm really into you know, memoirs right now, or I'm really mm -hmm. into uh, first fiction, or I'm really into politics, or I will go between these categories of books. But like, I have always, and again, it, because of, I think, the job that I had and the job, you know, as a book, as a book review, junior book review editor and reviewer, and then eventually as an author, um, I... I, the way I the, the way I read a book changes, and mm. like I am a um, and I feel a little guilty about this, but it makes a lot of sense when I think about it. But I'm a, I'm like I'm a snacker. I snack mm. on books. Like right. I don't, you know, I I, I don't finish most books that mm. I start, and I and I used to feel like that was a failing, and that there's a, still a glimmer of that. I feel like maybe I didn't honor every book, but like. When my job, my first job out of college was to to not read a hundred <laughs> books a week. Like it really was. And right. then you would read the really, the really great one or the one right. that held your attention past page 45. Right. And that was the one worthy of you sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm of it with your readers, the people who came to the Village Voice. So I changed the way I, I read and I changed the way I read cookbooks. So hmm. like you said, you're skipping you're snacking on cookbooks yeah. and I'm snacking and I continue to snack on fiction. Right. And like, I don't, I, I don't know. I've started seven books in the past two months. And I, <laughs> I think I'm, I don't think I've finished one yet, honestly. And wow. it's like, and like, that's okay. And right. I know a lot of things and I, and I gain things from it, but like, 
I'm missing all the endings and I'll get to the endings and I right. maybe don't even need them. Right. I, I, I like. Do you go back? Do you get to the endings or not? Some, 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 you know, I more, I used to more when okay. I, you know, um, I not, not right now, okay. but that's, that's one of the things that I want to, um, I want to get better at that. You know, mm-hmm. my wife is ridiculously completionist in okay. her approach to <laughs> Tell me why you guys work well together. You have the balance. Exactly. But like I have to say, like I, I would read um, cookbooks start to finish when okay. I was frustrated by and couldn't read first fiction. And then would you cook from the books or were you just reading them to read them? Um, I was mostly reading them to read them. Okay. I and mean, then I realized like, you know, I, I, I'm tired of what I'm cooking. And, and, and um, <laughs> there, there is, there's, there's, there is, I, I learned to cook. Um, yeah. So eventually at first it was therapeutic okay. and then it became practical. And um, like I, so that I do, there is one book that I credit as being the most important cookbook to me. Which one? And um, it is called Salsa de Pomodoro, um, the tomato sauces of Italy. Oh. And it's a, I'm going to say it's a quote unquote nothing book. It's not a nothing book. It's an everything book to me, but okay. it's, it's not famous. Right. Um, and it literally is maybe 50 tomato sauce recipes. Oh my God. And like all I could afford was like, you know, I was living in the East Village. Right. All I could afford was canned tomatoes and onions. And it's basically cucina povera. It's poor cooking. I was poor or, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I was. I think I was technically I was the lowest paid employee at the Village Voice at the there time. The union told me uh, when they wanted me to strike. Um, but um, and it basically was like I don't know forty ways of looking at tomato sauce, and so that was it. Really was um, I, I learned basic tomato sauce techniques, and I realized, oh wait, you can do one thing forty ways. Like, and if you like caramelize the onions this long, they'll turn super sweet. Or if you chop them really finely, they'll nearly disappear and add that sweetness. Or if you leave them, you know, in rings, they'll become this unctuous other textural level. And, and, and so I, and, or if you put balsamic vinegar in it, it will make right. it tangier or you can enrich it with butter and it becomes, or cream and it changes into something else. And, you can add olives and, and um, you know, red chili flakes and it becomes this aggressive thing. And so it was, you know, so it, that unlocked um, the function of cookbook. Wow. Okay. So I want to fast forward a little bit to where you are now. Mm-hmm. How did you go from making, reading novels and things, your job to make, and then reading cookbooks for joy and then going into the world of writing and editing and being a part of the food and travel kind of landscape because then that switched your joyful reading into your work reading, right? Yeah. And so this, yeah, there are these pendulum swings. And, <laughs> yeah, like, do you uh, still read cookbooks? <laughs> not the way I used to. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so, yeah. So basically I found um, joy and I found joy in cooking and uh, and I had something to say, you know, and I, like I, there's always that thing that I like – you know, they say, write what you know. And like, I always, as a writer and a reader, you think you're supposed to be a certain way. You know, we can't, I can't shake that. Like right. I'm supposed to be better or different. Like that's mm-hmm. a that's, human. It's human. Yeah. Right? And like, I'm not smart enough or I don't know enough about, you know, politics or I don't know about right. enough about, you know, uh, whatever, anything. And, and 
Don't get me started on the list. Yeah, um, I was going to say, if we go down this list, <laughs> we could be here all day. But yeah, I was like, it's like, oh wow, like I really like cooking and I really like food and and I um so this is and the great thing is so I mean I have to credit the Village Voice it was it was this experimental place where they would just let you try things and and I remember I basically was like I was like I can write about the way things taste and like I like I can talk about them and like think I'm pretty good at this I remember mm. thinking like I'm I think I like understand like I'm interested in how something becomes delicious. And who's doing what? And I want, I couldn't afford to go to fancy restaurants, but I loved reading restaurant reviews. And I love, you know, grew up reading the New Yorkers, you know, going on about town and just reading the little baby, you know, little micro listings. And, and like, I was like, oh, wait, well, that was like the fantasy of like being a writer. And like, I think this matches like seriously, like as a, like it was very juvenile. It was like, it was like, oh, wait, I can do what I wanted to do as a kid. I can write about restaurants, but I have to tell them, I have to get someone to do it. And hey, they're like, so I went to a listing, the editor of the listing section at the Village Voice, who was literally like my age, right? <laughs> and um, I was like, hey, you know, there's stuff going on. I noticed that like bars were getting better and food was showing up at bars, but we already had a restaurant reviewer. And I was like, cocktails were getting interesting. And I was like, hey, cocktails are like, something's going on with cocktails. <laughs> and there are all these bars that are opening and they're really interesting and smart. And the cocktails have fresh ingredients. And, and this is like in the early mid nineties. And, and I was like, so I think we're going through like this like cocktail renaissance. And like, I don't know why we're not covering this. And she's like, well, you should write about it. <laughs> and, and she's like, do you think there's like enough to write about every week? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And she was like, okay, well do you like, you know, you're our bar columnist. She's like, but, <laughs> but like, but I get to do it with you. So, so we <laughs> traded every week and we just started writing about bars and I started writing about like, you know, what's you know how people made simple syrup or what fresh limes they used and what the interior of a place looked like and i was like i I realized i was like i was happy writing i wasn't getting disappointed with myself for not writing the right fiction Hmm. and that was the beginning of how i got into writing about the way things taste and the way and and um and really like that was i just started pitching magazines because there wasn't enough space in the village voice and 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 editors accepted them because like my ideas were good enough. And and I was like, okay, if I can like turn this into like what I do, right? it's going to be, I, this is, I think this could work out and actually can get paid to write. And it's going to be so delicious. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've probably eaten at some of the most amazing places and had the most amazing chefs cook things that you've eaten. Over, over, over time, it got to be that at first I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I do. Cocktails. I do. Exactly. <laughs> at first you were just drunk all the time, but, <laughs> but later down the road. I mean, I think that in some ways, especially now with the way that food culture is and celebrity chef and all, all of that kind of stuff, it's kind of seems like the dreamiest dream job ever. I mean, it, it was, I was very lucky and, and I continue to be lucky and we all have to remind ourselves of this who work and continue to get to write about happy things and delicious things. Right. It's kind of like nice, fun, fun stuff. I mean, but also food is super political. It's yes. In its own, its own right. And then, and who's cooking and what they're cooking and why they're cooking and all, and where they're like, all Mm -hmm. of those things can be very political. I mean, who obviously comes to mind is Jose Andres because he's like of the moment, a very political chef, which is, in America, I would say, because there's a lot all over the world. Mm-hmm. He's not a born American, but he's yeah. cooking in America. Yes. Um, do you feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's a question there. Do you feel like a responsibility to be writing about 
both the joyful, fun part of cooking and the political stuff? Um, yeah, more more so than ever. It's, um, you know, as we know, there's been, I mean, people call it a reckoning and I, I wish it were a reckoning, but, you know, me, <laughs> we, it needs to be more of a reckoning, but me too and, and, and right. all of the scandals within the restaurant industry and which has changed right. the way. Of course. I, and how did I already forget about that? No, it's, 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 it's so it's, it's, I think the weird thing is it became very, it's one of those things where it, <laughs> it's been eclipsed by Trump. Um, right, and, 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 and unfortunately that narrative has um, suppressed uh, <laughs> the, the, the kind of what should be an ongoing and overt conversation, right. which is still there. And, and, but like in how restaurants um, are run, what, what goes on. And I know this is not a, a restaurant show, but it, you know, no, but, I'm but, so interested, please. But the writing and the books, I think the way what happened with uh, the Mario Batali scandal right. and, you know, it, it changed the way I think about those cookbooks that I learned from, right. you know, and that he wrote right. and, um, it's so funny. My, one of my best best friends from college in New York worked at one of the Mario Batali restaurants and then actually resigned mm-hmm. as a waiter. He was just like, I don't need to be a waiter here. Mm-hmm. I could be a waiter anywhere. I yeah. live in New York City. I work at Oto. Mm-hmm. I could easily work at another Italian restaurant in the village and be have the same commute and be totally fine. Yeah. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. that's so true. Because for most people, I think taking a stand mm-hmm. in that way is really hard and you really have to reckon. And I think mm-hmm. when it is almost not easy, but easier than we make it out to be, I was really proud of him. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's in, I think that is a sort of decision that a lot of editors and writers have had to make too. And I think that restaurant reviewing and, um, has become more, um, absolutely more political and these sort of assumptions of what, uh, food, should what role food plays in the cultural conversation is has has made food in some ways fraught i think just in talking about the politics of food i think that it's what's interesting to me is that and i've never thought about this i've never articulated mm-hmm. it we'll see how this goes but food is one of the few arts like if you think arts and leisure section that everyone has to consume Right. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to go to the ballet. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to watch sports, but you have to eat. And even if you're eating, you know, top ramen or if you're going to the fanciest restaurant, like there is activism within food for every single person anywhere in the world who's alive because you have to eat. Absolutely. And that's a great, that's an excellent point. And, um, yeah, I think. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. That food is a, uh, it is a, it is a political act, whether or not we like to admit it. Right. And it's also funny, like, like I've thought about that, but thinking about it as terms of as as one of the arts that we cover. Right. That's that plus that is is something I haven't thought about right. before. That like, and and that bumps up against something that I was thinking about. That like cookbooks are. Um, personal right yeah and recipes are a personal like someone created a recipe right which is in some ways like an algorithm or like a command right that we then incorporate and 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 um execute 
and then consume. Right. Like it, cookbooks are some of the most intimate because of the physicalization right. of the words and then our consumption of that. Right. It is in some ways the most intimate reading mm. and consumption loop sure. that there is. Right. And then if you think you also then if you have a dinner party and you're feeding other people that thing. It's it's like it's kind of mind blowing. It's pretty trippy. Like as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh man, this is deep. I've never thought about food at all in this way, but it is very like mind blowing. It is, and 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 then I mean, and then get into family, and like you're not just you know friends. It's and it's like, and then what are you? How are you programming your children, or how are you influencing, or and then bringing the diners that you are feeding as a, let's say, home cook um, into your political act. Like, right. like you're making a decision about like, who picked that kale right. that I'm going to serve to my friend? And my friend's going to have to either eat justice or injustice. <laughs> right. Like, am I serving global warming beef or am I serving sustainable <laughs> yeah. farm? Right. Whatever. In, ad- in yeah. addition to indentured servitude, right. you know, uh, right. dried, sun-dried it's tomatoes. So true. I've never thought about what I cook in that way, but now I'm going to be terrified to go to the grocery store. <laughs> I guess yeah. I'm going to have to just go straight to the farmer's market always. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, I think we should transition slightly off food because I know we're going to spend basically all next week talking about food too, so mm-hmm. we have plenty of time to go back. But I want to talk about your reading. And before we do, we do a little segment here. I'm kind of springing this on you, so don't hate me. But we do a little segment here. It's called Asking the Stacks. A listener has written in for a book recommendation. Mm. I'm going to read you what they said. Okay. And then I'm going to give some examples of some suggestions and then you'll give one or two or whatever you come up with. So this comes from Eva. She says, or maybe it's Ava. I don't know. Let me put it down. I hope I think it's Eva. That's what feels right in my heart. Okay. She says, love the show and hope you can suggest some great books to read. This year, I made a goal to read 15 nonfiction books. So I need just one more book to meet my goal. But I would also love any fiction books to read after meeting my goal. And she says some books that she's loved are Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And then some books she's hated are The Testaments by Margaret Atwood and The Girls by Emma Klein. And she said she didn't like those books because they became too, quote unquote, cheap and shallow. So here are my suggestions for you, Eva. The first one I would say is Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. It's about Paul Farmer. He's a doctor um, of infectious diseases. It's about his work in Haiti and around the world with AIDS and tuberculosis. And I'm picking this one because it kind of... It's not quite as fun as uh, maybe you should talk to someone or born a crime, but it is kind of memoir meets real life stuff even though it's not a memoir, but it it feels like that. So that's my nonfiction pick for you. And then my fiction pick for you is Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. I picked two medical books. Um, It's the story of these twin brothers in Ethiopia whose dad is a famous doctor and they're it's it's like a crazy story, but it's not predictable and it's not very cheap. So I feel like you might like it. Those are my two. Okay, Hugh, what is your book recommendation? Um, I would recommend uh, The Snow Leopard um, by Peter Mathiasen. Okay. Um, and it was a book that was recommended to me when I asked someone I really need something great to read. Okay. And it's basically, it was written in the 70s and uh, it's a kind of spiritual travel um, travelogue of, about a guy who goes on a um, quest with a... Um, would it be a zoologist who studies yeah, animals? Sure. Yes, and uh, <laughs> a leopardologist. <laughs> yes, and to um, uh, track and find and study um, uh, this very rare snow leopard um, and very elusive, this very elusive animal that lived in Tibet, and it's it's just about searching and seeing, um, and it is. Um, in the end, you realize, I'm not going to spoil it, but it is a way of this man escaping or dealing with grief. And I'm not going to spoil okay. that turn. Don't, don't explain and it. And is, it is profound. And, and, and I, I think about it all the time. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Eva, those are your recommendations. If you read the books, please message us and let us know what you thought. And then for those of you who are looking for book recommendations, email askingthestacks at gmail.com and we'll read your book rec on the air and we'll give you some random books to read. 
Okay. Now we're going to talk about your reading life, Hugh. Two books you love and one book you hate. All right. Two books I love. Um, and it's okay. So basically, um, there are a lot of books that I've loved that I've forgotten. Okay. Right? And then there are some books that I love that, uh, that I, I remember and they're very early books and they're books that, um, books that I read when I say early books, they're books that I read early in my, um, conscious reading life. Okay. And these are two books that I actually, um, wrote my senior thesis in college about. Oh. And, and they're very, um, in some ways they were predictive of what would happen in my life and I didn't realize it then. So, um, so they're important to me in a, in, in, in a very personal narrative way too. And so, um, one is, uh, <laughs> the day of the locust by Nathaniel West. I don't okay. know if you've ever read that, no. but it was written, I believe in the twenties or thirties. And it's an early, um, Nathaniel West was a very <laughs> dystopian Los Angeles based writer. And it is about, the artifice and desperation in Los Angeles in uh, the era that he was living is very much about um, uh, it's about a, uh, there's a guy whose name actually is um, Homer Simpson randomly uh, who is um, obsessed with a young um, starlet in Los Angeles. Who's trying to make her way in the world um, with utter and complete and desperate naivete. And so he's, (laughs) and, and, and it's this unrequited love and him, um, following her around and um, not getting what he wants and her not getting what she wants. And it's, there's, there are drunken parties and, <laughs> and, 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 and like Hollywood studio, you know, artifice and um, cockfights. And it is just. Sounds just like it, LA. I know, but the thing is. Like, <laughs> Nothing's changed. It, no, it is really, um, it was, it's, it's so tonally accurate today and it's and it's and it's a very uh, uh it is the, the opposite of a happy ending it's the opposite of what a recipe is <laughs> and it's um it's fantastic and 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 I, I i've dipped into it many times since moving here and just to just to sort of fact check that <laughs> things are still all the same still the same crazy yeah. what's yeah. your other love book the other one is like is the big sleep by raymond chandler oh. and it's you know and you know it's it's um, again, not dissimilar. It's, it is about, um, it's about complicated love against the backdrop of this, of this city of dreams, mm-hmm. um, that I, uh, and, and it's also kind of a confusing mess, um, that you can get lost in. Um, and it's a, again, it tonally, it's, it's, it's not nearly as dark as day of the locust. Um, but it is, again, I think about like, um, Raymond Chandler and Philip Marlowe, Philip Marlowe, you know, his detective character um, is about embodies observation. And, mm-hmm. and I, I like books in which you're seeing the seeing. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that Raymond Chandler really captures again, like what, what Los Angeles feels like, what it smells like, how it dresses itself, how it builds its buildings. Right. Um, so you get like a, you get a crime, you know, not thriller, but you get a, a whodunit, um, but you also get uh, it, it just a, a deeper, a, like a enriched sense of, of of a place and time. Amazing. Okay, what's the book you hate? <laughs> I've come to hate Catcher in the Rye. Welcome to the club. I mean, oh my god! Really? I'm like, can we? Can, I'm just like, I, it's appalling. When I reread it, I'm like, 
this is not a this is really <laughs> like it plays into our worst impulses mm-hmm. i uh i tried to read um the big uh the big um jd salinger um uh it's an oral history right the sprawling biography know. of him and i'm just like why are we so interested in this this just abysmal uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, sex criminal, yeah. and um, who indulges just the worst impulses. And like, I don't mind. I have no problem reading about people doing awful things. I just the lionization right. of this character, and then also the weirdly the ongoing scrutiny, and I think strange like continued lionization of jd salinger as a quote-unquote important thinker and, yeah. and, and when you're in there you're like he's he's a bad guy yeah like i'm sorry like we can like do we need to write thousands of pages about this guy that we should just actually just dismiss yeah no going we don't forward? yeah no. it's so. funny that book comes up often on mm-hmm. the show in either book you love or mm. book you hate i just i just want to know how all those kids who like named their um kid holding and feel. Yeah. Well, I just think, yeah. I mean, I talk about this a lot. I be, I'm a firm believer and it matters when you read a book, like when in your life you read a book. Yeah, and selfish I, idiot. I read that book when I was... Like I, 16? Yeah, right. Yeah, you probably liked it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read it at like 22 and I was like, this is not, for, like, I'm too old for it. Like, I already mm-hmm. felt too old for it. I was already over it. it you, I feel like if you want to love that book, you have to read it at 16 and never read it again. You mm-hmm. can never look back. You just have to hold on to those feelings and trust that you love the book. Because if you read it again as an adult, it's like, ooh-wee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, um, what are you, you said this earlier that you were reading about seven books in the last two months. What are mm-hmm. you currently reading? Um, I am currently reading... Um, the Mosquito Coast by Paul Theroux. Oh. And um, Paul Theroux, again, these are like these 70s, 80s writers. Um, um, again, with the dystopia. It's it's um, about a guy. I think it was written maybe in the 80s or 90s. I can't, it, it feels very much out of time because it's a guy who uh, is about this um, sort of genius, um, misanthropic inventor uh, who – takes his who's disgusted with what's happened in the United States on every level and just, uh, <laughs> the idiocy of the populace, the you know commercial exploitation of 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 ignorance um, and so he takes his family to central america to i can't remember exactly where but somewhere in central America to kind of start society again in a small mm. scale and um yeah i'm I don't know I'm about i don't know pages into it but he's um it's, it's one of those things where i'm like do i really want to finish this? i'm just gonna ask you do you think you'll finish i think i will i Maybe. think i will because i'm more conscious and a little I, I i am committed to changing that about my my reading. you are yeah you're not you it's not just like this is who i am and no like- no because i i i i yeah no i'm i i that's something i want to um i want to do more of just because i want to get better at that Finishing. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and finishing what you start. Yes. That's so funny. Um, and I'm reading um, Running to the Edge by Mark Futterman. It's a book about um, a running coach in the 70s and 60s who, um, uh, in San Diego, who took a bunch of sort of misfit runners and coached them into a national and eventual, I believe, Olympic level Ooh. by uncracking or cracking. 
uh, the code to um, distance running and speed. And mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, all these things. I'm like a, I'm a novice runner. Uh-huh. Um, and he was one of the um, early um, proponents and practitioners of, uh, of, of interval training and realizing that oh, the okay. only way to get faster is to go faster. And the only way to run longer is to run longer. But he came up with the, he found, he sort of stumbled into what became scientifically proven of these oh. things that we all do. You know, I imagine you might have practiced in your own profession yeah, and right. that I do that we all take for granted. And he was, and he, and he arrived at that with a, a ragtag team of runners in Southern California. So that, that's cool to see yeah. the underpinnings of what, of how we run. Yeah. Do you read a lot of things that are California based or that I, just happens to be a trend so far? That's just random. <laughs> I was just, I've been, I, 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 yeah, that, that it's a trend so far. That okay. I, it's probably true. Well, our mutual friend, Heather, who yes. was on the podcast, she had a ton of California books because while well, she was working on her own book, she was trying mm-hmm. to read everything that was like ever written in California. Yes. So she had a lot of California books. So I wasn't sure if that was an intentional. It wasn't intentional. This one was just because I've been running more recently and, and I wanted to read about running. Have you read Born to Run? I have not. By Chris McDougall? I have not. Chris McDougall. It's the book about running. It, it's really good. If you're mm-hmm. into running, I, I ran um, and then I had... I ran and I trained in New York and then I ran a race in California and I got hot and I fainted. And so then I was like, oh my God, I can never run again. And then I read this book and I was like, I can never not run again. And I like got back into running <laughs> oh, that's and I redeemed myself. I ran not like three more half marathons and I did a marathon and then I just don't run anymore because okay. I was like, check, I right. did it. I overcame my fainting, but the book is amazing. Okay. Born to Run. So if you're into running, it might. I will check it out. Yeah. It's like pretty unput downable, I feel. Oh, great. Um, what are some books that maybe you're looking forward to reading? Um, a lot of people, including my wife, who recommends a lot of books to me that I end up not reading, but one <laughs> I think I will, is um, A Little Life by Hanya mm. Yanagihara. Okay. If I'm saying that right. And uh, uh, so I've, I've had her and I recently a colleague of mine um, told me about how profoundly affecting it was for her. I need I, to know if you finish it because <laughs> it's so long. You know, it's like 800 pages. <laughs> yeah. I This is like, please, if you read it and you finish yeah. it, you must email me. Okay. I need to know. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> what's a book that, or how do you pick your next book? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's changed. It, it's, it's recommendations typically from people that, that I know. You know. Yeah. And, um, often family. Um, okay. I, so, you know, it used to be my dad, uh, and before he passed away. And then it was my stepfather in law, my father and one of my father in laws who, okay. who was a big, uh, genre crime mm. fan, obsessive okay. collector. Okay. So, um, so he got me into a lot of just kind of poppy crime. Um, and, but that doesn't happen as much anymore because he's not around to recommend those books, but right. his books are still here. And I, I actually, I'm like, Oh, that's Library Not still here. I'm gonna go go <laughs> read <gonna> that. <laughs> <laughs> Honor him through right. through, reading his through borrowing his books. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the last really good book a person recommended to you? Um uh, Christodoro by Tim Murphy. Okay. Do you know this book? Mm-mm. Um it's You're a, gonna be surprised. I don't know probably ninety percent of the books you're gonna talk about. So. And I know I'm, and I probably know one yeah, percent okay. of the books that you're gonna talk about. <laughs> um so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of them. There's so many books. It's insane. It's impossible to know them all. <laughs> um, yeah, Chris Dororo by Tim Murphy. It uh, takes place over several decades 
or at least two decades in um yeah one generate generation ish in the east village um where i used to live uh christadora is the name of a, an apartment building on Tompkins square park that was right around the corner from where i lived and it tracks it sort of goes through uh the through the aids crisis into the, today tracking the impact of partially that and a fractured family um on a uh on a troubled kid who mm. kind of goes from kind of lives through that in this sort of east village milieu right what's your ideal reading setup if you were going to sit down with a book in the most perfect place and read where are you when is it what's going on you know it's i read at night in bed as many people do and that's not my ideal reading i like, yeah. i love it but yeah. like i know that that's not that's not the fantasy yeah. you know it's great and i'm so grateful that i get to when when i have the energy and to do and, it, and, to do it right. and the opportunity I, I love that oh my gosh that's so funny it's like it's like i like think like oh i remember really enjoying reading on like uh you know this is such a cliche it's like on like a hammock and you know on the uh, under a palapa and you yeah. know in hawaii you know and like sure. like like i think there's all this like it is like it, it's that sort of situation um and i just don't <laughs> you don't get to do that because you don't go on vacation right because you don't you don't spend your whole life in a hammock in exactly because i'd love to the, i would love for it to be me Heading to a book without having worried about anything in advance of it and mm. then leaving the book not having to worry about what I have to do next. Mm. So it is definitely a vacation situation. Yeah. When you know, have no wherever stress. that would be. And you know what? I mean, so let's go all the way. Like, I don't know, like in a, I don't know, in a really nice Airbnb, like <laughs> in the Marais in Paris, just to be sure. totally cliched. Like, and then you could so, go know, eat so something basic. delicious. No, that's great. <laughs> exactly. One vacation. of my best reading moments of life was in Portugal, this mm-hmm. resort had tea it was kind of chilly and they gave me this blanket and i was like in this outside or like this like lofted part of this hotel i don't know it was so dreamy and i was reading americana mm-hmm. and it was just like ugh, the freaking best oh my gosh let me think about that it sounds great yeah. oh no can i revise it no yeah. now it's a, yeah cold, yeah a little chilly a little chilly. Uh, yeah, let's, you let's get into it. yeah the, yeah so um by a uh peat fired fireplace in um on the dingle peninsula in ireland in my my grandparents had a house in Ireland mm. and which was drafty and cozy. And, um, and again, this is like, this is time travel, but yeah, to like that, like that place. But now me and not the kid that I was. then. Are you Irish? I'm half Irish, half Irish, half Irish and half Filipino. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so cool. What a good mix. Okay. Do you have a favorite bookstore? Uh, yes, I do have a favorite bookstore. Um, and well, and it's, uh, in New York and it's called the strand, Uh, right? Of course. (laughs) And, um, so yeah, that's my favorite bookstore. And I I mean, I don't get to go there anymore, you know, because I don't live in New York anymore, but like, how can you not love it? But when you go to New York, you go. Yeah. It's just so iconic. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. And, um, and I just, and I love, uh, Chevalier's on Larchmont. Yeah. It's a very sweet bookstore. Do you, that's actually where I got my copy of Salt, Fat, Mm -hmm. Acid, Heat. What's the last book that made you cry? Uh, Chris Dodoro okay. by Tim Murphy. Yeah, it's it's hard, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. What's the last book that made you angry? <laughs> so so much literary fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I can relate. I'm sorry. Um, uh, it's frequently books that people have told me. I have to say, it. I don't, I don't want to, I, I don't want to insult anyone. There it's are many, more, it's not so much, it's more that you don't, you're not into the book. Someone recommends it to you and you're like, this it's, is not it's that often good. It's books that have been, 
it's books that have been celebrated for for being profound and i see like i see the effort in trying to arrive at the profound mm, okay. um we don't have to name names but i know what you're talking about yeah. we but that question often brings up people often ask like, well, what kind of angry? Because mm-hmm. sometimes if it's like a nonfiction book, it might be the content of the mm-hmm. book makes you angry. Sometimes I feel like Heather's answer had to do with she was angry because she felt she could never write as good mm-hmm. as the book that yeah. she was talking about. Yeah. And then sometimes people are angry that a book has been hyped up so much mm-hmm. and it feels tedious or something. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Sorry to not be able to name. That's names. okay. It's a whole, there's a whole genre and it's, it's also... I'm just gonna say it's like it's it's petty anger because mm-hmm. it's just it's frustration. This is the same frustration that I felt when I was working at the book review where I'm like, certain things are gonna get rewarded right. that are not really about like truth. It's just right. about it's about packaging. Hmm. Hmm. You'll have to tell me off there. <laughs> What's a book where you felt like you learned a lot? Pema Chodron's Start Where You Are. It's a mm-hmm. Tibetan. I don't know if you've ever read her. No. She's a She's uh, an American-born Tibetan Buddhist, and uh, she gets into a lot of um, Tibetan Buddhist, you know, mindfulness, essentially, and um, breaks down how we tend to experience thought and feeling um, and, and to some degree, time. Mm -hmm. She doesn't say it, but there's a whole time layer, too, in the practice. Um, that completely that I am just fascinated by and um, I am learning about how I respond to things through how she breaks down how we respond to things mm. to be a little woo-woo but it's 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 and there are scientific underpinnings to it that she that I that like I know exist that she doesn't get into so I'm just I'm just learning mm. learning a lot about mindfulness and Tibetan sort of poppy Tibetan Buddhism I like that are there any books that you feel really proud to have read? Oh my gosh. You know, I would say no, no. Okay. Are there any books that you feel embarrassed to have read? Let me think for a moment. <laughs> what was that? What was that SM book that everyone was into? 50 Shades of Grey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I even tried to read 50 Shades of Grey. Uh, I read all three. <laughs> That's always my answer, too. I'm like, so embarrassing, but I love that. They were so fun. Vacation read. Yeah. Um, what about a book that maybe you're embarrassed that you've still never read? Still never. Well, I've never finished Moby Dick. You know, I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Me neither. Join the club. I've also never started Moby Dick. <laughs> okay. I do want to talk about this a little bit because you were raised by a writer. Your dad, you said your father was Mm -hmm. a writer. Your grandparents had a publishing company. Mm -hmm. You wanted to be, you were an English major. You wanted to be a writer. So what were you reading as a kid? What Mm. books in Mm -hmm. your childhood stick out to you as Mm -hmm. favorites or meaningful? Yeah. uh, Because I'm assuming that's where you found your love of reading was from childhood. (laughs) it was. But I really realized like the kind of writer I wanted to be is some, is not the writer I want to be now. Which is so, I mean, like I was, I don't know. I loved all the kind of obvious white men, you know, right. like I, right. I mean, again, it's like, oh, I, it's really hard for me to like, I tried to read like F. Scott Fitzgerald again. And I'm just like, <sighs> I'm like, no, no, thanks. no, thank you. Hard pass. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I was just like, like, I wanted to do that, you know, right. and I wanted to write, I think I wanted to write Catcher in the Rye back then. Right. I want, I saw, and there were just these like, I actually do think it's a lot about 
wanting to be something that you feel you're not. I do think a lot of it was wrapped up in identity mm. for me, like being like the not 100% white person, right. therefore wanting to be the 100% great white American right. writer. Because those you are know? like white writers. Oh my gosh. Those those are so, like oh yeah. Ghostly. In, in worlds <laughs> that I did not inhabit. Like I was, right. I mean, it was a very, to me, it really is, a lot of it has been about um, reading and writing is about, you know, becoming for me, I mm-hmm. think I really realized. And like, um, and writing was a way of going and entering and being able to inhabit worlds that I believed I was not supposed to inhabit. Right. Um, regardless of the, like, however true that was, it's, and or untrue, it's what I felt. And mm. I sort of see a pattern. And, um, so yeah, like, uh, and so it's very strange to think, now and I, I agree it's, and there's only a it's a continued evolution about like like how you write and what and, and how much of you you put into your writing mm-hmm. and like um like i don't write a lot of first person stuff um that it really has to do with who i am it's what i again it's what i'm seeing right which is i think right does it make sense that yeah. i'm like because I'm, I'm like i'm very i'm much more comfortable talking about what i'm seeing that, sure. that than about who I am. Well, right. Cause talking about who you are, it's definitely more vulnerable mm-hmm. too. It's yeah. much more personal inside stuff. Yes. Um, okay. I would be wildly remiss if I did not ask you to talk about some cookbooks that stick out as just faves, all star, maybe a few recommendations of cookbooks that you feel like for people who want to try reading cookbooks like mm-hmm. me, who are normally reading recipes, but not the actual books parts, like which cookbooks are just, yeah. Yeah. The best. The best. I mean, from a pure from a pure understanding of ingredients and how they work and looking at one ingredient from a bunch of angles, Shea Panisse Vegetables by Alice Waters mm. is uh is 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 required. It okay. it talks about what what you know about vegetables when they're when they're in season, what they should taste like at their peak, and then what to do with them. And mm. it just goes it's almost like a, uh, um, it's, a, it's like, you know, it's just by, you know, artichoke, asparagus, you know, broccoli right. and, 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 and it'll be like, and you just, <laughs> and you will come away with a, a, a 360 degree, um, understanding of, um, seasonality and right. um, multiple approaches to making the most of those of vegetables that are in season. Um, that's, that's like essential, um, and I mean, that's just, that's like, I would recommend that above, above so many, you know, if you, uh, Marcella Hazan's The Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking is okay. a fantastic cookbook that is, uh, just so obsessive and, and precise and opinionated. Um, and you really get this. She is a bit of a tyrant and, um, it's great. <laughs> um, and, uh, a book, a, a book that also, and these are not so much personal narrative books. These are more technical, okay. but Tom Colicchio's think like a chef mm. um, is very much um, about sort of hacks and principles of cooking and, okay. and, and was very ahead of its time. And it was before he was a TV celebrity chef, but he's, right. he's the great chef that he is because of, of what he, what's in this book. Right. Mm. Do you do any reading of food writing that is more narrative as opposed to cookbook? So what pops into my head when I said I was like Michael Pollan mm-hmm. or yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Kind of books. Yeah. The omnivores dilemma, of course. So good. Yeah. So great. <laughs> uh, 
Um, this and this is a weird. Uh, this is a I have a complicated remember a complicated relation with this relationship with this book now. But Bill Buford's Heat, which was about being inside of the kitchen in the Mario Batali Empire. Oh. Um, so it's very interesting now to think. Okay, so he saw all of this cooking. What else what did else he, did he see? see? Right. Um, yeah. And there is a there is a moment in the huh. book that I remember where Mario Batali is a little a, a kind of abusive to him and a mm. little aggressive and and you know and which is not uncommon in, in kitchens, right. but um, it is a moment where you do see a twinge of cruelty um, that is, it stands out and, right. and, and you then, you know, to put it now in the context of what we all, you know, learned since then since. is to, is to, is to, you know, you just realize it was the tip, the tip of the iceberg. Right. Um, but that's a great look inside professional kitchens, sure. but albeit a partial one. Right. Um, and then, uh, blood bones and butter by Gabrielle Hamilton. Um, who, and she's a great, great, uh, great cook. And, uh, she, that's a beautifully written, very personal memoir about love and, and, um, uh, you know, the dissolution of a marriage and, and the starts with one of the most stunningly romantic, food memories uh, mm. of a, a perfect idealized and therefore um, impossible domestic childhood scene that then, you know, you never return to in the rest mm. of the book. And it's, that's, that's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I stole this one from the New York times. If you could recommend one book to the current president of the United States, what would it be? Um, it would be uh, start where you are by P Pema Chodron. Um, because it is is it's about um, compassion, compassion for others, and compassion for yourself, and mm. that is something um, that he lacks. And I, 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 I would, I, I believe that he would fail to comprehend um, and take in the message that because I don't think that even his um, central processing unit is capable of um, of the empathy and compassion that he is. Um, you know, that this book, um, I think clearly shows is about the only thing that is just about the most important thing right. for, um, a person to, uh, relate to other human beings in a, in a functional and, and, and useful way. So, yeah. Yeah. But that's a good recommendation for him. Compassion, compassion, compassion. All right. We're going to get out of here, but before we do, just a reminder, next week, we're going to talk about salt, fat, acid, heat by Samin Nostrat. And I know you guys are all sitting there like, what the heck? They're going to talk about a cookbook. It's just trust me. It's going to be magical. I'm super excited about it. Um, you, we won't, there's not spoilers. So if you haven't read the book yet, you don't have to, but let me just say I highly recommend it. And it's so beautiful that if you haven't read the book yet, you should look into the book. Just saying. Um, Hugh, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. It was fantastic being here. Yay. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to Hugh Garvey, our amazing guest. We are back next week to discuss Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat. There won't really be spoilers, so feel free to listen even if you haven't read the book yet. Find everything we discussed in today's episode in the link in the show notes. Get your book recommendation read on air by sending an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. 
For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.